Welcome to church. So my goal over the next 30 minutes, make it 20, is to convince you that he's actually mostly right. Hey, like that for church. Daniel chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, nor meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions. That's my favorite line, actually, of the whole thing. (laughs) At all until three weeks were over. So Daniel gets this vision. He, he, He receives this very serious news, right? And so what he does is he reorients his life around some practices of prayer, fasting, Um, obviously not lotioning up. And these are meant to posture himself towards God, to, to appeal to God and, and to, to convince God to move on his behalf. In verse 10, it says, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you are, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up. For I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Now pay attention to this next part. He then continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come to res- in response to them. But the prince of the Persian king resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there in the king, with the king of Persia. Now, what's happening here is something that's super interesting. Um, this is not a human king. This isn't the human king of Persia. This is a spiritual being that detained this angel from answering the prayer that Daniel asked for. Now, it's a pretty wild story. It's not something you hear every day. And uh, this isn't a human king that holds him back. It's actually what theologians call a territorial spirit. And so Daniel gets serious news. He prays. He asks God to intervene. He learned that God had responded immediately, but that this dispatching of uh, a spiritual being in response to that prayer, it was delayed, it was delayed uh, from happening for three weeks. Now think of the implications of that story, um, if you even believe it at all. But if you do believe it, if you do be- trust what Scripture is saying, if this is real, can opposing spiritual beings not only and uh, delay prayer can they can they keep things from being uh, answered altogether? And has this ever happened to me? Has this ever happened to you? Do we don't even know? How can we possibly know? And if they can do that, if spiritual beings can do that, what else can they do? And what else have they done? Now, for weeks, 
for now four, this is week five, we've been having a conversation. We've been working through a really challenging paradigm about the three enemies of the soul, the the flesh, the world, and the devil. And if you're just joining us, there's a lot of ground we've covered. And so some of what we're going today has been built on that ground. So um, I would encourage you to head back. But the primary antagonist of the scripture story is the adversary. Um, And we talked about that the first two weeks. Um, we talked about this idea that there's two realms of reality, that there's the physical realm and then there's the spiritual realm and that both those realms are populated by very spiritual beings and those realms overlap. And um, spiritual beings have the ability to affect things in our natural world and we have the ability to pray that God would intervene on our behalf into the spiritual realm. And in the same way, there are beings that worship God and there are beings, beings that are set against God, both human and spiritual. Now, if that's a lot to hear for the first time, I apologize, Um, but here's what we're going to do today. We're going to carry this out to its logical conclusion. And its logical conclusion has to do with evil in the world. And, And when we get there, when we get to the logical conclusion of all of this that we've been grappling with, we're actually going to have to wrestle with something quite serious, okay? So please listen. This is really important. Though it is true... That deceit and lies is the go-to strategy of the enemy. It's It's not the only thing that he does, and it's not the only thing that he can do. So we're going to actually turn to Mark chapter 9. And basically what we're going to do today, and I apologize, there's... We have a lot of quotes, and we have some things that I wanted to have on the screen, and we had some technical difficulties. It's not Chad's fault. He's in the back, and he's awesome. Everybody give it up for Chad. Uh, Just had some some cloud issues, you know what I mean? So the three things we're going to talk about today, if you're taking notes, sickness and death, natural evil, and chaos. And if you're wondering, those are also the three things I use at dinner parties to get conversations going. (laughs) Sickness and death, (laughs) natural evil, and chaos. And the reason why we're doing this is that what we want to do today is construct what theologians call a theodicy. Stephen Fry mentioned it, the word theodicy. Theodicy is an answer to the problem of evil. So a theodicy is the answer to the question, why a good God permits the manifestation of evil, thus we got to figure out if if God is all-powerful and all-good, why is there evil in the world? Sound like a pretty good question, right? Um, Something that you may have struggled with, something that you may um, have conversations with people about a lot, Um, and how you answer that question is called a theodicy, okay? So if we are continuing along the trajectory that we've been marching on in Scripture, if Scripture is really clear that there is a spiritual backdrop to the Bible and that that backdrop is one of warfare, of actual cosmic, you know, good and evil warfare going on throughout the history of the church, okay, all the way back to the early church, the early church believed that there was warfare. 
um, not only in reality in their lives, but uh, as seen in the pages of Scripture and as Scripture was being formed um, in their midst. And so what we have is if there is warfare, then what we need to understand is there must be something to this warfare and our theodicy, meaning how do we answer the, the problem of evil? If God is good and all-powerful, why is evil here? So let's look at Mark chapter 9. Just start to build this a bit. When they came to the other disciples, this is verse 14, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Jesus says, You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus said, if, if you can... Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I love that line. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. So there's a lot going on here, but for our purposes this morning... I'm going to ask you a question. Was the boy sick or was the boy possessed by an evil spirit? Oh, come on. You guys aren't brave enough to just answer out loud. He was sick or was he possessed? The answer to that question is always yes. Well done. Yes. So I always do those trick questions. It's both and, right? It's an interesting thing. We tend to think that that time, 2,000 years ago, they had a primitive worldview, and the boy just had epilepsy. And that they just attributed all of their ailments and that they just attributed all the ailments they dealt with to evil spirits. But here's the problem with that. Jesus performs an exorcism and it works. Okay? So, he draws a distinction between the boy and the spirit that was in the boy, 
And so Jesus heals this mute boy and he casts out a demon. And what's interesting is the distinction between those two acts is not being made by the gospel writer. They're one and the same. And healing and casting out of the spirit are connected. Okay, so for Jesus, sickness and suffering are not imposed by God, nor are they God's will. And we're up to build this for a little bit here, so you just got to hang with me. And for some of you, just also have grace on me on this one, because we're walking into some ground that, that people have talked about for 2,000 years. Okay, so give me that. Peter summarized Jesus' ministry, actually, in Acts chapter 10 by saying that Jesus went around freeing people from Satan's uh, oppression by healing them of their diseases. That's what Peter says in Acts 10. Um, the early church believed this. That, uh, and here's this. It's ar- ar- articulated in Acts chapter 10. Look at this. God anointed Jesus of, of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So for the authors of scripture, Jesus does not separate the two, evil and sickness. Look at another story here. This one's really quick. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. This is Luke 13. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Gosh, the the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? So I'm going to take a stab at the first building block of our theodicy. And there's only three. So if you're doing math, you're a third of the way through this. The first building block is this. Spiritual beings have the ability to afflict human beings with physical and mental illness. Now, what that doesn't mean is that all sickness and disease is the result of an evil spirit. You have to hear me on this. Do not leave here. And, and when you get a cough, okay, don't, don't do it, okay? We'll get to all that here in a little bit. But this presupposes that just as human beings are given freedom and agency, spiritual beings are given that same autonomy. And we're going to move down the road on this, okay? So some of you might be thinking, why couldn't God just create a world and exercise unilateral control over the world so that there wasn't evil. Why did he do this? Um, Well, yes, he could have done this. Um, But there would be no relationship. So if God created us and, and we did not have the choice, free will, to rebel 
um, and spiritual beings didn't have the choice to rebel, um, then there would be no relationship. There would be no collaboration. There would be no love. C.S. Lewis puts it like this, and I wish it was on the screen, but if you have a program, actually, you can follow along on the back. And is this, this is on the Bible, the Bible app, right? Check. Someone knows. Maybe. If you have the Bible app. God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go right or wrong. Free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that work, worked like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they've got to be free. He goes on. Of course, God knew what would happen. If they use their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. If God thinks this state of war, okay, there's that warfare language, in the universe, a price worth paying for free will, that is for making a real world in which creatures can do either good or harm and something of real importance can happen instead of a toy world, which only moves when he pulls the strings, then we may may take it that it is worth paying. So you've got human beings with free will, and you've got spiritual beings with freedom, and both are able to do good or not good. Tim Mackey, who's one of the creators of the Bible Project, he says the physical realm and the spiritual realm are two distinct and overlapping realities. And the evil the spiritual entities inflict is not, uh, not only on human beings. Uh, Stephen Fry mentions actually nature quite a bit. He actually mentions the Loa Loa worm, which I would encourage you, if you've got nothing going on today, you can look that bad boy up and read, <laughs> read about that little piece of evil. Um, he mentions evil, actually, Stephen Fry, he, he actually mentions evil inherent in nature. And interesting, interestingly enough, I think the, the writers of the New Testament reference that as well. Romans chapter 8, Paul expresses this view of creation as being cursed when he said that the creation was subjected to frustration. And he goes on to say, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The whole creation has been groaning in the pains of, like in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So this idea that, that creation is frustrated, that creation is broken, that creation isn't totally how God intended it to be because of the fall. Um, this, this actually goes into the laws of physics, the law of entropy. Think of the law of entropy. Um, it's, it's basically uh, the second law of thermodynamics, which is like if things are going to continue to progress, they're going to continue to uh, break down. Um, and Paul, if Paul and Genesis are right, 
then actually this law does not reflect God's original intent for creation. For I could have mentioned any number of evil inherent in nature. I uh, go to a gym uh, nearby, and they have this this room of massage chairs, which which is you know. Um, so when I tell you to go to the gym, um, what I really mean is no, I'm just kidding. So after working out, you can go sit in the massage chair, and it's it's supposed to be this like really peaceful experience, and you're sitting there, and the lights are down, and and the massage chair is doing its thing, and then they have one of those nature shows on the wall, like on the TV, and you're sitting there trying to relax, and they're like, there's like this wolf eating a carcass, you know, and you're just like, this is not relaxing at at all. What's interesting is that there's so many horrific things in nature. And um, Darwin, actually, when he was, he was studying something that this is something else you may not want to look up. The Ignumian wasp. He was studying it. Um, he actually wrote this to a friend. He said, I am bewildered. I had no intention to write atheistically. But I own that I cannot see as plainly as others do and as I wish to do evidence of design and beneficence on all sides of us. There seems to me too much misery in the world. I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created the Ignubian wasp with the express intention of feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars. Or that a cat should play with a mouse. What a, de- what a book a devil's chaplain might write on the clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low, and horridly cruel works of nature. Man. Yeah. So, many species of animals abandon, kill, or even devour their newborns. It is a violent, cruel world. Hurricanes, tornadoes, natural disasters... What do we say about all this? The early church responded to this question with the understanding of the two overlapping dimensions of reality. And uniformly argued, I mean uniformly across the board argued, that spiritual beings had an effect on the environment. That spiritual beings, uh, like humans, free will, they were given influence and autonomy in the world. Origen, Tatian, uh, Athenagoras, um, all the early church fathers unanimously said things like barrenness, droughts, famines, and other natural disasters result from the effects of evil beings in the world. Now, you guys are probably like, "This this is over the top. Tertullian even argued diseases and other grievous calamities were there's, were the, was the result of demons whose great business it is to ruin mankind. Because these early fathers, listen, are simply working out of the implications of the biblical view that the adversary throughout scripture is called the Lord of the earth, the God of this age, the ruler of the air, and controls the entire world. Jesus said this in John 8. We've been working off this text for a few weeks. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your, your father's desires. 
He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So our first building block was that spiritual beings have the ability to afflict human beings with uh, mental illness and uh, physical illness. Our second building block to make this theodicy work is that spiritual beings have the ability to afflict the natural order, creation itself, with evil, suffering, and even death. Those are two big building blocks. Your head's probably spinning a bit. But wait, there's more. The third thing we're going to talk about is chaos. And hopefully this will all make sense shortly. Uh, This is really important. We want to talk about the balance here and the gray areas here because this is so important. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. In our journey to take the supernatural seriously, we do not want to be the type of community that blames everything on the devil. Okay? So, like I told you before, I don't want you to race out here and then run to the store and someone cuts you off to get a parking place and you blame it on the devil. I don't want you to blame the Broncos lost today on the devil. I don't want you to see. Here's the thing. I said they were going to lose last week, and they won. So we're just going to keep this going, okay? So we're not going to blame the Broncos lost on the devil, you know, all those kinds of things. I I just want you to understand what we want to do is bring um, an element in here that's really, I think, mathematical. There's a branch of mathematics called chaos theory. Anybody remember Jurassic Park? Right? Chaos theory is this idea that any complicated system can be massively affected, okay, by seemingly small movements along the way. So you've probably heard this in the, in the term of the butterfly effect. The butterfly flaps its wings across the world and went through a series of complicated things and happenings and things that could create a hurricane on the other side of the world. This is chaos theory in mathematics, and um, here's why this matters. Our world, our lives, our souls, according to Scripture, are broken and bent away from what is true and good and toward what is just actually destroys us. And the creation itself is bent away and broken as well. Wasps, hurricanes, cancer, pollution, Ebola. I've been into Ebola lately. You read about Ebola. I think they're getting close to a cure on Ebola. Nasty. Because both human beings and celestial beings are created with freedom, and you can argue with me on how much freedom, we can debate the extent of that freedom. And the result of that freedom is that a human being and a spiritual being can do good things and partner with God and God's working in the world. Or rebel against God and do things out of selfishness and pride. And you and I both know that we don't live in vacuums. Meaning when you say a a, a hurtful word to someone. Or when you do something violent. Or you know whatever happens, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Our actions and our words and our thoughts have consequences. They affect people. And that is true, I believe, on a cosmic scale. So, simple actions set in motion ripples. 
And I think, personally, that because of creation's brokenness, because of fallen beings, spiritual and human, and their willingness to participate in things for God and against God, it sets in motion ripples upon ripples. And the effect is that you and I have been victimized simply because of patterns of chaos based on the fallen world. Now you guys go, man, you are getting way too deep and out on a limb. Maybe so. So basically, I'm just telling you this. There are two variations, I think, of demonic influence. I think there's direct demonic influence. I think there's stories like we see in Scripture where Jesus actually confronts an actual personified entity and deals with that personified entity. I think we see demonic influence in our world still today, uh, whether it be someone who commits a mass shooting or horrific child abuse, anything like that. Um, I also think there's indirect things that happen. I think we are affected by the evil all around us. And I think we are affected by the evil that sometimes creeps up inside of us. Both cases, we as followers of Jesus are to recognize it for what it is and where it comes from. Listen to this quote from Greg Boyd. He says, when one possesses a vital awareness that in between God and humanity, there exists a vast society of spiritual beings who are quite like human beings in possessing intelligence and free will, there is simply no difficulty in reconciling the reality of evil with the goodness of a supreme God. It virtually sidesteps the problem of evil. So consider this. I know I've said a lot. I know you're probably agreeing with some of it and maybe not. If our broken creation that we live in is inherently chaotic, filled with autonomous wills, your will, my will, nation's wills, spiritual being wills, infinite variables, demonic influence and circumstances and natural evil. If our world, if our, if our world is filled with all of that, then how does God intervene in it? How does God show up? What happens? What can we do? How, can, how does God, and when we pray a prayer, when we pray for a friend, when we pray for um, a healing of a body or a disease, when we pray for uh, school shootings to stop, when we pray for all these things, how does God intervene? Quick metaphor for you. Hopefully this helps. Think of a small house and see this small, picture this small house in the countryside of a worn, torn um, nation. It's occupied, the countryside is occupied by the enemy. But in this house resides a family, a family with a wife and kids and maybe some extended family. And their dad or her husband is actually the captain of their uh, army, but he is off fighting on the, on a different front. And imagine this little house has a small radio in it. And this radio is connected to a device that the captain carries with him. And at any moment they can communicate with the captain and they can communicate things like we've been fallen victim to an attack. Somebody's wounded. We need supplies, whatever it is. 
the captain always hears those requests. And the captain always cares deeply. He cares deeply about their situation. But the captain is also part of a larger battle. And so help is sometimes immediate and help is sometimes delayed. And they trust the captain, okay? But they also lack the broad perspective of the captain and seeing what's going on. But they learn to trust the captain even though the captain cannot or has not yet responded to their request. Now, I know that metaphor breaks down and you're like, but what about... God is different than the captain. God is all-powerful. So how can something be impossible for God? If God is all-powerful and all-loving, how does this still continue to happen? How does chaos happen? How do all these things happen? Now, what I want to jump into here as we land is something really important for us. We read things like, for God, all things are possible. And we call these truth statements, okay? And they're truth statements because um, they're, they're statements about who God is. And, and yes, they're true, but in the sense, they're not metaphysical truth statements. Meaning a metaphysical truth statement would be, um, if I believe that all things were possible, Jesus said this in one of the passages we just read, anything is possible for, those who, for the one who believes, if I believe that as a metaphysical truth statement, and I really believe that I can fly, um, that would break down when I jumped off something high. So we have truth statements, but we also know that God cannot sin. We, we know that God cannot be tempted, as we get out of James. We also know that God cannot contradict himself. So God cannot make a round triangle or a married bachelor. Okay? So those are also things we know to be true. God cannot sovereignly decree that the cosmos is truly free, but also not free. You following me with that? God cannot sovereignly decree that the cosmos is truly free, but also not free. So for God to respond to every prayer in keeping with his heart and what he truly wants, he would have to at times revoke freedom. And as far as we know from scripture, God does not do that. Meaning, irrevocability is built into the definition of free will. Now, if I've lost you there, listen to this. You and I are confronted with a life that is inherently chaotic. It is riddled with evil, and it is set before the inevitability of all kinds of suffering and ultimately death. And it doesn't mean that suffering, we can get into another conversations about suffering. Suffering can actually be such a good thing for us. And I think as a American Christians, we have a poor view of suffering, um, but God wants to draw something through us in our suffering. So that's another conversation for another day. But we live in an inherently chaotic world where there are wills at work. Even so, 
it doesn't mean this realization is without hope. The story of scripture is the reality of an ongoing war. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. Scripture, all throughout scripture, is about warfare. Not about fighting flesh and blood. But about what God is trying to do and what the enemy is trying to do. The story of World War II, as many of you know, D-Day was a decisive battle. June 6, 1944, allies stormed the beach. It's one of the places in the world that I definitely want to visit. It was a decisive battle. And what you also know is that D-Day wasn't V-Day. V-Day was over a year later. So for over a year, the decisive battle was won, and yet battles were still being fought. In fact, after D-Day was the Battle of the Bulge, which was horrific. Um, And there was just many, many things leading up to that. Listen to what Greg Boyd says about this. He says, in the same way, Christ in principle defeated the powers with the unsurpassable, with, with the unsurpassable love he unleashed through his incarnation. Life, ministry, death, and resurrection. D-Day has been fought and won, but we are still waiting for V-Day. In the meantime, there are many important battles to fight. Indeed, sometimes the enemy fights the hardest when they know their doom is certain. So in our story, in your story of apprenticeship to Jesus, the hero has already won. The enemy has already been defeated. And on a coming day, all evil will be eradicated for good. This is really important. Understanding your life and your struggle is understanding what God does and what the enemy does, and the two are never alike. In John 10.10, Jesus says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he says, I have come that they may have life and life to the full. There's a huge distinction in this verse. It's written grammatically and literarily to make this distinction so huge. Two different workings. Steal, kill, and destroy. One brings death. One brings life. Radically opposite. God's purposes for you is not death. Do you understand that? And my heart breaks and my stomach turns whenever I'm in situations where people ascribe things that the evil one does to God. And they'll say things, well, God is in control. And there's just something in me that just goes, no, that is not God's sovereignty. God did not will this. I heard someone stand up in front of their congregation once and say that though his father had physically abused him, as a child, that God had planned that with great purpose in mind for his future. I said, no. God did not do that. A broken man did that who was energized by the chaos of the enemy. The last enemy, Scripture says, the last enemy to to, to be destroyed is death. And this matters. Because how can we go to battle with an enemy when we attribute his work to God and his will? We can't do it. 
And how do we even hope to understand God's love and goodness if we impose on God the murderous work of the evil one? Can you imagine how God feels? Like, it's like, I remember wrestling my kids. We used to wrestle our kids all the time. I did. And um, Angela didn't want any part of that. But we'd be wrestling, right? And like, Sydney's like, say four, and Keelan's two, and we'd be wrestling. And every single time, someone ends crying. It just always ends crying. Um, I remember one time, I, was th- I threw Sydney onto the couch, Right? And Keelan was sitting over here, like he was sitting on like the ottoman or whatever. And he just fell off the chair and hit his head. And he stands up and he goes, you pushed me. Say, I didn't push you, liar. (laughs) Uh, No, I said, I picked him up and I said, Keelan, I didn't push you. I never push you. But it's just like that idea of like, I just wonder how God feels when we when after a tragedy we tweet things like well it must have been God's will after the tsunami in Japan in 2011 there were theologians that did just that they tweeted garbage like sovereign plan And there was a, um, the, another theologian. His name is David Bentley Hart. And I would not encourage you to read most of his things. I'm always nervous mentioning people. <laughs> okay. But he wrote a little book called The Doors of the Sea. And it was a response to this. It was a response to this idea that God was somehow responsible for this tsunami. He wrote this, if indeed there were a God whose true nature, whose justice and sovereignty were revealed in the death of a child or in the dereliction of a soul or a predestined hell, then it would be no great transgression to think of him as a kind of malevolent, contemptible demiurge or lesser God and to hate him and to to deny him worship and to seek a better God than he. And here I think he is connecting a little bit with Stephen Fry. Because there is a being at work in the universe that scripture actually calls a God. The God of this age. The ruler of this world. This God's work is indeed revealed in the death of a child. And therefore it is no great leap to hate him and to deny him worship and to seek a better God than he. And to Stephen Fry, I would say, you are just talking about the wrong God. I join him in saying, bone cancer in children? How dare you? This is not our God. This is evil, lesser God, and we denounce the evil one. Just as we denounce his work around the world, he is not responsible for your headache or your parking spot thing or whatever. But all that is not good is either indirectly or directly the result of evil in the world and fallenness in the world, and we don't blame God for it. 
And when we're berated by another marriage that is undone by infidelity or another synagogue shooting or children abused or neglected, we recognize that it's not God's will. It's not God's will that's being done in that moment on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray that prayer and Jesus teaches us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that presupposes the idea that there are multiple wills being done on earth at any given time that are not God's will. And the call of the gospel is for us to actually put ourselves in a position to answer that prayer. Like we actually avail ourselves as being ones that would be willing to make God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're presenting ourselves as the means to which that prayer can be answered. Uh, N.T. Wright says this, the call of the gospel is for the church to to implement the victory of God in the world through suffering love. That's our call. That through our suffering love that Jesus modeled on the cross, that we would then go into the world, take up our cross, and implement the same suffering love. The New Testament teaches that Christ did not just die to redeem human beings. In Colossians, it says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself what? Human beings? No, all things. All things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's what it's about. So I've presented to you something that's a little heavy, a spiritual warfare theodicy. And my hope is that you would leave here and wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. Let's pray. God, this morning we... We're going to come to the table as a community, um, wrestling with our world, wrestling with pain, wrestling with um, what you want us to do about it. And so God, give us grace, send your spirit to reorient kind of our mental maps of how we see this world and how we see you moving. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.